You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good evening and happy belated Thanksgiving. Uh, In the spirit of Thanksgiving, I did want to say thank you for having me in front of you once again to preach uh, as many of you know, I am still attending Midwestern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary, and this sermon is to help me fulfill my requirements there. Nonetheless, it is this sermon is far from homework. It is of greater joy than a book report. Uh, and I pray that as I preach, you can see that this is far more than a homework assignment. So again, thank you for allowing me to be here, and thank you for coming. So last week, in the last sermon, Sean preached about Paul on his way to Jerusalem. If we remember back to Acts 20, verse 22, Paul was compelled by the Spirit to make this return, knowing that affliction and imprisonment awaited him. In the last sermon, in the first half of chapter 21, we saw this confirmed. Men from Tyre told Paul not to go, fearing what would happen to him. And Agabus of Caesarea prophesied that Paul would be bound by the hands and legs and delivered to the Gentiles. The church urged him over and over, don't go, you are going to die. And Paul Paul's response was that he was ready. He was ready for imprisonment and death for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And from this, Sean asked, what are we willing to do for the name of Jesus? Are we even willing to die? And I pray that our answer to that sermon was yes. As we move into the text for this evening, I want us to be aware that though Paul was ready to die, he was not seeking out the imprisonment and death. Instead, as we will see, Paul is seeking to live at peace with others. As we walked with Paul through his three missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts, we have seen him speak boldly truth, and this has caused quite a stir wherever he's gone. And perhaps this is what was expected in the city of Jerusalem. However, this does not mean that Christians should actively try try to be troublemakers. So we join Paul then in verse 17 as he comes to Jerusalem. The brothers, the church, receive him gladly. And I can imagine this scene. See, Paul, we got to remember, back in chapter 9, when he was first converted was feared by the disciples when he first visited Jerusalem, but now he is returning as a beloved missionary of God. This is a beautiful transformation. And as we move forward, we see that Paul meets with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church. He gathers them and declares all that God has done among the Gentiles. And so there's, there's just one thing I want us to remember, just highlight here, just a little footnote to add to your Bible. Notice who is being given credit. Paul is certainly the one who has walked hundreds, if not thousands of miles to city to city. Paul is the one who has preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, 
And he has the scars to prove it. In 2 Corinthians 11.23, he states and lists his afflictions. He lists imprisonment, countless beatings, being near death, given to the Jews for lashings on five separate occasions, each of which he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods, he, has st he was stoned once, and he's been through three shipwrecks. And yet, even though it was Paul who traveled, who preached, and who went through these afflictions, it is God who is given the credit for doing the work among the Gentiles. And I just think to myself how quickly we are to give ourselves a pat on the back for some accomplishment when it is, in fact, God who is accomplishing these things. It is then right then for the elders of the church in verse 20 to glorify God and not Paul. However, there seems to be a problem, and it is the main problem of our text. The elders tell Paul that there are thousands of Jews who believed, praise God, but they are zealous for the law. And they have heard that Paul, through rumors, that he was teaching other Jews to forsake Moses, not to circumcise their children, which is the mark of the covenant given to Abraham, and to not to walk according to Jewish customs. It is not hard to see why they may have come to this sort of conclusion. We read in Galatians 5, 4 through 6, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Or Paul writes in Romans uh, 2.25 through 29 when he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not far from man, but from God. So this seems pretty clear-cut. When it comes to the justification, the law cannot help. Circumcision cannot help. Paul is clear over and over again. You are justified through faith and grace. So it seems that the answer to the concerns of the Jewish Christians is, yes, forsake Moses. Forsake circumcision and the law. They do not do anything for you. We know from the book of Hebrews that these things were all pointing to Christ and his cross. They have been fulfilled. We are no longer under the law. We are people instead of faith. But then look what happens, happens in Acts 21. James and the elders tell Paul to go purify himself with four other men under a vow and to pay their expenses. 
This is an act of Jewish ritual. It is an act of Jewish custom. And according to many commentators, sacrifice was most likely involved according to the law. Paul was to do this so that the Jewish Christians could know that there was nothing in the rumor that they heard. And what did Paul do? Did he say, hold up, wait, we are no longer under the law? No, he did what was asked of him. He submitted to the elders and ultimately to the law. And I just think to myself, Paul, what are you doing? Paul, do I have to open up your own letter to Galatians or your own letter to the Romans and show you your writings regarding the law? Have you forgotten the council in Jerusalem that happened in chapter 15 of Acts where Peter declared to the Gentiles that they did not have to keep the law because it was a burden that not even the Jews could bear? I mean, for Peter's sake, James even reiterates this command in verse 25 of our own text. So clearly, they understand that the law means nothing. What is going on? Is this a case where Paul, and that's the Bible itself, is contradicting itself? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is a case where taking a step back and understanding history can really help us here. First, let us think about uh, points, the points in time that this story is taking place. I have found that this particular arrest, which we will see later, um, happened between 58 and 63 AD, depending on the commentator and the way of dating the book of Acts. Christ was crucified around 33 AD, so at the very most, it has been 30 years since the cross and the fulfillment of the law. The Jews, by contrast, have lived with the law and the custom of Moses for 1,200 years. That means that the time period of the law being fulfilled in Paul's time is less than 3% of the total time that the Jews have been under the law. Not only this, but the law was not just a set of rules. It is seen as the culture itself for the Jewish people. It is what marked them as different, as holy, and as God's people. Are we surprised then that new Jewish Christians are having trouble letting go of these things that make them Jewish? You see, when Paul speaks of the law in passages that I have quoted The specific frame that he is referencing those is through the frame of justification and salvation. And he correctly concludes that they have no power to save, only to condemn as no one can ever live up to the law. And I also think that the believers in Acts 21.20 would agree with Paul on this, the Jewish believers. I take the text At its face value, James and the elders tell that these are thousands of Jews that have believed. This must mean then that they know that the law has no power to save. They know that Christ has come to fulfill the law. And they know that Jesus was the only sacrifice that could satisfy the wrath of God for sins. But they still hold on to it. They still hold on to the law, not as a means of salvation, far from it, but as a remnant of who they are. So why does Paul not just correct them? 
Why does he not just refute, refuse to take these vows? Would it not be better to resist them so that they might know that they have freedom in Christ? Not necessarily. Within our Christian walk, we all are in different places. Though the Jews were indeed free, their conscience seemed to bind them to the law through their zeal. In the book of Romans, in chapter 14, Paul teaches that the church, Paul teaches the church that they should not pass judgment on one another in matters of food and what should be eaten. One side eats meat freely, the other side abstains and only eats vegetables due to their conscience binding them. They're both free to choose whichever side that they want, but the one who is free to eat meat should not flaunt his freedom or cause his fellow Christians to stumble. They instead choose to abstain from what they are free to do for the sake of the weaker brother. And Paul concludes, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And a principle can be derived with this because it doesn't have to be about eating. Put it another way, whoever has doubts about blank should not do blank. Otherwise, they are condemned for it does not proceed from faith. Fill in the blank. And let me give you a personal example of mine. Now, this is my own views. It is my own theology. So always keep this in that context. On a personal level, I see depictions of Jesus, that being either paintings or drawings, as sinful. I have my own reasonings, I have my own arguments, and some of you may disagree. I know that Sean does, Pastor Sean. But I'm personally bound by my own conscience. You may view me as the weaker brother in the matter, though I may disagree. However, it would be wrong for you to judge me of my convictions, and it would be wrong of me to judge you if you do not hold the same view as this is not a central portion of the Christian faith. It is a matter of personal conviction. Admittedly, I do not think that this is a clear-cut case. So then for the Christian Jews in our text, their conscience is still bound to practicing the law, not as a way of salvation or justification, but as a necessary for maintaining their identity. They are, in this case, the weaker brethren. So what does Paul do? He decides not to condemn them for their convictions, but instead submits to the Jewish ritual, at least in part, so that they may not stumble and to keep peace within the church. Because this is a topic, this, this is a struggle that could have torn the church apart. There was already a huge debate on the law in chapter 15. Instead of arguing with them and possibly leading to division, he, Paul, sets aside his freedom for the sake of peace. And this is the great lesson that we should learn from this text. We must be willing to set aside our freedoms for peace despite differences in conviction. And it's hard to come up with an equal situation since the law in Jewish culture is so important to these Jewish Christians. It is beyond what we experience here in America as the great melting pot of the world. If there is one thing about American culture that comes close to the zealousness we see here, perhaps it's in sports. I know that Pastor Sean is an Iowa Hawkeyes fan, and I commend you for being here despite that. 
But let's say for a moment that we have a friend or a coworker who is a new convert, and they are passionate for Christ. They have tasted the sweetness of God's grace, but they are deeply convicted and convinced that sports is one of the great idols of American culture. They see the players and the teams as gods that people worship. They see how elated someone can be when the team has defeated a bitter rival, or how in despair that very same person can be at a loss. They see the jerseys, the hats, the decorations, and the body painting as little acts of ritual worship. And through the week, they hear talk, even from church members, not necessarily about God, but about the game last Sunday, or the upcoming game, or stats about this player, or that, or how well their fantasy team is doing. Now, you may not be into sports in the way that I described here to the point where it's an idol, but what would you do for this new brother or sister in Christ? Would you be willing to not only not watch sports when you are with them, but maybe even change the way you talk with others when you're around this weaker brother or sister for the sake of their conscience? You may not think they are right in their conviction, you may see that Christians are free to enjoy a game without having to rise to the level of idol or worship. But are you willing to just set aside for the sake of your brother? And it doesn't have to be sports, just like it didn't have to be food with Romans. We can have brothers and sisters who are sensitive on drinking. We can have brothers or sisters that are sensitive on smoking or smoking cigars. They can be sensitive about guns or hunting. Will we set those things aside for the sake of peace within the church and for the conscience of others? I think we must. Our love for others, knowing that each of us are at different spots in our Christian walk and growing in grace is what will fuel this love. And this need for grace for one another and seeking the peace cuts against a presupposition that many of us may have you may have thought it yourself. The thought may sound something like, a good Christian wouldn't believe that. Or a Christian wouldn't do that. Or maybe with these Jews in our text, that's so legalistic. But what may be an unspoken or subconscious assumption is that somehow these Christians, these new believers, should be perfect. Or at least they should have had some sort of radical transformation that past sins or their understanding of Christian freedom should be more developed than it is. But rarely is this the case. Even those who have radical conversions by the grace of God and are able to overcome deep and abiding sin have yet to grow, grow in the full maturity of Christ. The way that we bear with the understanding that they're growing, the way we bear with each other with the way that they're growing, that is how we show Christian love to the new believer. And it is my belief that Paul knew this. His submission to what is asked of him comes from an understanding that these Jewish Christians have not grown in their full maturity and understanding. So he will set his freedom aside for their sake. And this should be our attitude. If you will take one thing away, I pray that it is that. But you may have noticed that there is still more text. 
we would hope that Paul has done and settled the issue by setting aside his freedoms. However, we see in verse 27 that there's Jews from Asia, non-Christians, and they grab Paul and they cry out to the crowd for help as if Paul was dangering them, even though they're the ones assaulting him. And they accused him of teaching everyone everywhere against the law, against the temple, and that he even defiled the temple by bringing a Greek in. There are a few things to note about this section and about this passage. One is that we see the destructive power of rumors. See, earlier in our passage, we heard that these Jewish Christians heard secondhand that Paul was teaching that Jews should give up Jewish practices. And we have seen that this is not completely true since what Paul taught was that these Jewish practices and the law could not lead to salvation. But now the accusation has bloated. It has gone from just saying Jews to every man everywhere. Worse, they accused him of being against and defiling the temple, which is the heart of the Jewish people. And this was based on an assumption that Paul brought uh, Trophimus into the temple. They had only seen him, both of them together in the city, and they just assumed that Paul brought him in. This rumor has grown and has passed outside of the church to the city itself. And what is ironic is that they're accusing Paul of being against the law while he's in the middle to submitting to it. Paul, in verse 26, gave notice to the priests of the temple when his days of purification would be complete. Now, nearing the end of that purification process, Paul is attacked. And far from being calming, Paul's actions being calming, it worries the people and they become overblown, slanderous. And if the Romans had not stepped in, in verse 32, to arrest him in fulfillment of earlier, it would have been deadly. They sought to kill Paul. What are we then to learn from this? Paul is seeking to keep peace within the church, and yet his actions do nothing to stop others from stirring up trouble. What then? Well, Christian, sometimes even when you do the right thing and seek peace, there are still those who will be against you, particularly those outside the church. I mean, let's just contrast the reaction that we see in the first half of this passage and the second half. In the first half, we have Jewish Christians concerned about Paul's teaching, but a path is given for Paul by the elders to show that what they have heard was false and in keeping with Jewish custom. There was a path of peace given. And this is what the church should do. And it's the route that Paul took. But now in this section, in the later section of this passage, there are Jews outside the church and they do not seek peace at all. They seek Paul's death. What else should we expect? See, in the church, there is grace and there's love. There's reconciliation because of our relationship to one another and the unity that we have with Christ. There can be differences, but we all sit at the same table with King Jesus. We sit in fellowship. 
but the world is hostile towards Christ and towards his people. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And it's important that we are hated not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. That's the example that Paul, see, Paul, Paul gives that because Paul is seeking peace, but it's, he's still hated because of the gospel that he preaches. And they have twisted his words and his messages. See, last week we saw Pastor Sean point out the fact that Paul was willing to die for the sake of Jesus, but it was not the church that Paul had to worry about. It was not verses 17, 17 through 26, where peace is an option through the sacrifice of Christian freedom. No, the death threat comes from outside the church. Now, we do not face the same situation here in America for the most parts. But similar situations have played out. There have been internal disputes within churches that have bled out. The church seeks a path of peace and reconciliation, but the news gets out, media might take over, blow it out of proportion, and demonize the church. A church may struggle with the issue of same-sex marriages, for example, and conclude rightly that marriage is between a man and a woman. But then from the outside, they're called bigoted, hateful, and out of touch. Again, the threat should not come from within the church, but from outside. So I wish to leave you with this admonishment. If it is only on the basis of Christ, or it is only on the basis of Christ, that we can seek this peace that Paul has shown us in this passage. And it is because of Christ that the world will not accept it. If peace is sought out on any other basis than on Christ and his cross, unity will be impossible. It will be fleeting. It will not last. There will be just some other issue that will rise up and try to tear the church apart. And if the world hates you, for any other reason besides Christ, you need to examine yourself. See, in our text today, the accusations against Paul are just a mask to conceal the hatred for the gospel. For if you hated for any other reason than the cross, then you are not reflecting Christ, because it is Christ, ultimately, that they hate. And brother, sister, we must reflect Christ. Please bow your head with me in prayer. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.